Welcome to Equosity, the podcast about all things equine with a special emphasis on the horse-human bond. My name is Alexandra Kurland. I'm the author of The Click That Teaches, a step-by-step guide in pictures, and many other books and DVDs on clicker training. And I'm joined by Dominique Day, one of the co-founders of Cavalia. The origins of today's podcast go back to the February Art and Science of Animal Training Conference. February, I must say, seems like an ocean of time ago. It was a different life, a different world. The coronavirus was just a news item about something that was happening to somebody else, somebody who's living a long way away from where any of us were. And now, of course, the coronavirus is impacting all of our lives. Just look at how our behavior has changed. We're learning firsthand how effective negative reinforcement can be. We're wearing masks, we're washing our hands, we're staying home, all to keep bad things from happening. The absence of that terrible thing is reinforcing our behavior. At the Art and Science of Animal Training Conference, Dr. Paul Newman gave the keynote presentation on negative reinforcement. And there were several parts of his talk that I was confused by. So he very generously spent a couple of hours at the end of the conference going back through his talk and answering a barrage of questions, both from myself and from the others who were there. I was still left feeling as though I wasn't quite understanding how the absence of something happening could reinforce behavior. So you have a a rat in an experimental chamber who is being shocked. These were studies that were done in the 1960s. So hopefully they're not being done today, but these are some of the studies that he was referring back to. And the rats learn to press a lever to keep a shock from happening. And it wasn't really clear in the way the experiments were being described how the rats made this association, how they learned to press this lever and to avoid the shocks. I kept thinking I needed a real world example and not just this description from a rat study. The information felt incomplete to me. It's a case of be careful what you wish for, you may get it. Today, as I wash my hands after bringing them in the mail or going to the grocery store, I am understanding a bit better how all of this works. My behavior has been radically altered by the threat of the coronavirus. I am behaving in ways that the rats were. I am washing my hands to keep something from happening in the same way that the rats were pressing a lever to keep something from happening. But as I'm thinking about this, I could certainly see that negative reinforcement was very effective. But I don't want to live in a state of fear. So my questions became, how can we shift that? And for that kind of question, I know who I want to talk to, Dr. Susan Friedman. Dr. Friedman is well known to many of you listening to this podcast. 
She's a retired professor of psychology at the Utah State University, where she pioneered the application of applied behavioral analysis to captive and companion animals. She's a member of the Clicker Expo faculty, which is where I have gotten to know her. We've shared many a late night conversation and always the time I get to spend with Susan, I count as very precious. She lives what she teaches and I'm always better for having been in her company. So we had a long conversation a couple of weeks ago. My main question was how do we shift from the negative reinforcement paradigm that the virus has put us in. For so many reasons, it isn't sustainable. Apart from the emotional toll it puts on us, here was my starting puzzle. Several years ago, I read a fascinating book on the history of vaccines. Don't ask me the title or the author. It's what I refer to as airplane reading, and it's in some stack of books somewhere, but I don't have it to pull up the author. Anyway, it was a really interesting book. For starters, I learned that vaccines were much older than I had realized. The first vaccines date back over 300 years. I had no idea. If you're curious, I'll let you explore that on your own. I'm going to fast forward to the 20th century and his discussion of the modern vaccines that we're more familiar with. Vaccines for things like polio and measles and flu. These are terrible diseases. And before vaccines were available, people feared them. Measles wasn't just a childhood disease. Measles killed children. So when vaccines were developed for measles, Parents did not hesitate to have their children vaccinated. They were eager to get the vaccines. But the success of the vaccine was its own undoing. People were initially more afraid of the disease than they were worried about the unknowns of using a vaccine. So they vaccinated their children and measles all but disappeared. I don't think I know anyone who has ever had measles or lost a child to measles. So it's easy to forget what a killer measles can be. We lose our fear of the disease and vaccinating it becomes less and less important. So now questions over the safety of the vaccine become more of a concern to parents. And because of this, more people are choosing not to vaccinate, which means that the herd immunity decreases. That means that there are fewer vaccinated children in the population, and suddenly there are outbreaks of measles here in the US. So the author was explaining through this why even with very effective vaccines, it is so hard to completely wipe out these diseases. The paradox of avoidance is its success is its own undoing. And this is something Susan shared with me in our conversation. This was one of the many things that we talked about. So again, how do we pivot away from avoidance? 
our conversation took us down some really interesting pathways, which I thought were important to share. So Susan very generously agreed to join us for this podcast. This is a long conversation. Normally, I would split it and publish it over several weeks, but with so much happening so quickly with the COVID-19 virus, I decided to release it as one podcast. But it is long, so I'm going to interrupt briefly at good stopping points. You can listen to it in small batches, or you can consume it all at once. It's your choice. I think I'd be wanting to consume it all at once, but then I'd return to the different segments to listen again to Susan's wisdom. Just to give you a little heads up of what we're going to be covering, in the first half hour, we're setting the stage. So Dominique and I are revisiting some of the questions that emerged from Dr. Newman's talk at the Art and Science of Animal Training Conference. I don't think you need to have heard his talk to follow our conversation. Dominique had some questions, especially related to poison cues that she wanted Susan's help in clarifying. And I think you'll be able to follow the gist of this part of the conversation. We're defining some terms and setting up the main discussion that is centered around the impact the coronavirus is having on our lives. This is a hopeful conversation. As Susan would say, we live on an amazing planet, which is why I so wanted to share this conversation with you. Enjoy. I feel as though we are all rats in some huge experimental chamber right now, learning about negative reinforcement. And normally, when we're talking about training, our focus is on positive reinforcement. And we say, yeah, you know, yes, yes, negative reinforcement, punishment, it works, but let's look over here. Let's look over here at positive reinforcement. And now all of a sudden we are not just looking at negative reinforcement, we're living in a huge negative reinforcement contingency in that, you know, we're all, we're suddenly, we're compulsively washing our hands, we're wearing masks and our behavior has changed radically. It's changed quickly. All to keep something from happening that we can't even see, which is a really remarkable thing. It's a remarkable planet. I would yes. say, you know, when you say this really, the idea for this podcast was launched by confusion. I had to just stop and perch on that with you for a minute because I think every day there's something that confuses me you know, imagine me with my head cocked, you know, yes. like a dog, yes. huh? And um, then I turn back and I always start by pulling out textbooks, sort of the pre-digested right. summaries. Right. And then from there, we'll go into original research if I need to. So confusion is a motivating operation, you know? It is. It's, it's a great, it's a great uh, for many of us, a great catalyst for digging in deeper yes. to the things that we're interested in. And it is itself negative reinforcement to the extent that when we get unconfused, we experience the relief yes. from confusion. Absolutely. So you know, when you say we were, we were like rats, 
you know, I wrote down, we were always like rats in a chamber. (laughs) That's a big aha right there. We were always like rats and rats are like us when it comes to these basic principles. And um, we're always in environments. So whether they're literal chambers or metaphorical, you know, influential contexts, metaphorical chambers, that has always been the case. Yeah. Yeah. Well, one of the things that the two of us chatted about a couple weeks ago was, well, I, I was describing a, something that I had read in a book on vaccines and that the issue with vaccines is that they are too effective. So I don't have any fear of measles from direct contact with it. But as that fear goes down, then the concern over, well, are vaccines safe? Do they, you know, there are side effects. There's, uh, should I really vaccinate because my child might get sick from the vaccine? Or So the there's a drop-off in the, having your child vaccinated. So then the measles goes back. <laughs> that's and the so paradox. We, that's the paradox. And that's what I thought was so interesting to talk about. That paradox. That's the speeding ticket. <laughs> uh, yes, yes. And, and in that paradox, so we right now are living in fear. We are living in fear of the virus. And so we are washing our hands and we are putting masks on. And I live in upstate New York, so I'm very close to the epicenter of the virus. Very close to it. So I suspect that I'm having a different experience from the experience that you're having because you live in, you live much further away from New York. You live in a state that is not uh, densely populated. So I expect that, that your experience is somewhat different from the experience that I'm having with the news coming at me that feels much more Uh, Like it's in my backyard, as it were. Mm -hmm. So we can definitely feel the effect of, I am doing this to keep something bad from happening. We can't sustain that. And we don't want to sustain it. So how do we shift to, how do we take advantage of this opportunity that the virus has created by stopping so much of our lives, how do we create a shift to something that is sustainable because it is nurtured by positive reinforcement? So that was what I really wanted to chew on in our time together today. The the paradox and the shift. And Dominique, run out the speeding ticket example because I think it'll be useful to consider how common this phenomenon, this pa- this paradox is? What were you thinking about the speeding well, ticket? Well, the speeding ticket, when, when you just get it, you slow down. But then if for, so it's in the beginning, it's very effective because you just experience the threat. I don't know how much it is in the state, but the $200 ticket with the right. points that you lose. And and then, you know, so for a few months, you, you just slow down. And 
whenever you see a car, a policeman's car, you slow down. But then if you don't see police car for a while or if they go on strike, well, all mm -hmm. of a sudden you start speeding up again. Yeah. And so it is only effective if you see once in a while the police on the side or if you actually get another ticket. Otherwise, it will lose its efficiency at keeping you not speeding. Exactly. And so between the two examples, coronavirus behavior or mes and measles and, um, behavior and speeding ticket behavior, how this influence over our behavior is really ubiquitous. It's everywhere. And we can make an interesting distinction, I think, between escape and avoidance. Because when the aversive stimulus is in the environment, when you're living where uh, coronavirus is very prevalent, you have neighbors or family members experiencing it, then our, our hand-washing behavior um, is really an escape scenario, similar to seeing the police officer hidden in the trees, which I do have an ongoing relationship with our <laughs> sheriff, <laughs> and um, which I'll say stories I'll save for another time. But I look for him hiding in the trees, and when I see him ahead and slow down, then you know I'm I'm escaping. I'm controlling my outcomes um, by escaping, which is a relief. But the paradox of avoidance is that uh, nothing is reinforcing something. Something, yes. Yeah. yes. But, and isn't it interesting that nothing and something um, wordage fits in so many different applications from Joe Lang pointing us to that great Wittgenstein quote, you know, uh, emotions are not nothing, but they are something about which nothing will serve just sure. as well you know yeah yeah yes. um it that really applies in a lot of ways to avoidance um behavior as well as and you describe the both of you in those two different cases describe the paradox or really there are two paradoxes um one is that a non-event the non-occurrence of something is seeming apparently to reinforce our behavior like hand washing or going the proper speed and then the other paradox is that usually with reinforcement, behavior me, is maintained. Let me, yeah, mm -hmm. let me interrupt that for just a second. Because sure. somebody could say, well, that's because we have language and somebody can tell me about the virus and I can read the news and read about the number of deaths that are occurring in the state and, and how many people got sick this, today. And I can listen to Governor Cuomo's briefings where he always starts out with the, the uh, diagrams of how many people were hospitalized, et cetera, et cetera. So he could say, well, that nothing isn't really nothing. It's what I'm seeing every day in Governor Cuomo's briefings. But then you go to the rat studies and the rat is pressing the lever to keep a shock from happening, but the shock doesn't happen and the rat doesn't have language. But it has past learning history. Right on. It yeah, learned right. from the past because it's, it knows or it has experienced the shock in the past because if it had not experienced the shock in the past, then there would be no negative reinforcement. I think that is part of the way that I 
figure this this uh, paradox out. I'd just say first that when you talk about what Como says and what we read in the paper and so forth, that's escape behavior. Threats are an antecedent stimulus present yeah. in the environment that we then behave to remove or to reduce. So uh, threats are absolutely a prevalent way to influence behavior yes. and escape of threats. And we see that with non-human as well as humans. So with humans, it often takes the form of uh, verbal, verbal language. But with animals, if you raise the hose, and as Dominique points out, the macaques at a zoo have a history of being sprayed with the hose, then they will move into the inside enclosure to escape the hose. So all of those are escape behaviors, threats, yes. whether they're language-based or not. But that is not to discount the fact that with human behavior, we don't only behave according to the contingencies in the current environment and our past history and our genetic tendencies. That's not the only um, sources of our behavior. We also learn and our behavior is influenced by verbal rules, by our verbal community. Yes. But that itself is an operant. So we teach children that you don't need to put your hand on the hot stove. You can just follow my rule, don't put your hand on hot stoves. So, and yes. I had one child who learned from the verbal rule and one child who learned by, by needing to touch the hot bath tap. Yes. Yeah. Yeah. Um, so all of those things you describe are really, to my ear, more along the lines of escape, which I think is less paradoxical, easier to track, that we're behaving to move away or to diminish a stimulus in the antecedent environment. With unsignaled avoidance that you talked about, I remember hearing in the, uh, you talking about it from the um, art and science conference, after hours um, talk, <laughs> yes. when you don't have a threat to escape before something happens tangibly or uh, so you don't have the keeper holding up the hose right. before you actually get sprayed. When it's unsignaled, which is where I think you were going with the rats in the chamber, that's when the paradox uh, becomes clear because there's nothing in the environment to use your behavior to escape. Now it's unsignaled. There isn't an antecedent signal like holding the hose or seeing the police officer in the in the or, uh, trees. Or a light that goes on. Or a light in a chamber or a tone. Okay. Mm -hmm. So that's why I thought it was useful to separate escape negative reinforcement with what I read in some of the older literature. I had not seen this or noticed it before. Some people call secondary negative reinforcement because the, the signal becomes the conditioned stimulus, like a secondary reinforcer or right. conditioned reinforcer. The signal becomes a conditioned stimulus for escape, even though it isn't going to harm you itself directly. The light isn't going to harm you or the tone, but it becomes a conditioned aversive, conditioned negative reinforcement, and so you escape from it. I think the COVID... Um, example is about avoidance. So now we're washing our hands and the hand washing behavior uh, increases, at least yes. initially, yes. based on what outcome, you know, the absence of something. 
you know, it's so similar to our discussion of superstitious behavior. Yes. Right? Did you connect yes. that that as well? You know, I'm I'm so if I were labeled obsessive compulsive because of my hand washing a hundred times a day, I would have gotten that label from clinical psych because I was washing my hands and there was nothing I was avoiding. <laughs> Now we're washing our hands. The topography and the frequency of our behavior is exactly the same. Yes. And we have this, this concept because it hasn't hit our homes for many of us. That's right. Thankfully, we have this conceptual thing. That is, if we keep washing, we can reduce the probability of getting COVID. So that's really the case of avoidance, the influence of a, of a, of a stimulus of the absence of an antecedent stimulus, that unsignaled avoidance behavior. And it is, it is unique. I was going to say the paradox, there's really two of them. One is that behavior increases due to the non-occurrence of something. Or I guess that's a way to talk about it. And then the other paradox is the one that you were heading towards that I find really interesting. And that's that usually when we think of reinforcement, we think of it as the functional outcome that continues successful behavior. So reinforcers strengthen the behavior that leads to success. Yes. And here what we have is behavior that when, when a behavior is maintained on avoidance schedules, negative reinforcement as you were pointing out, eventually the behavior starts to decrease if you don't contact the aversive stimulus. Yeah. 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 So that and, I think is a so paradox as well. One of the things to... I found clarifying actually about that in the conference was changing the word non-occurrence to postponement. Yes. It's because, very helpful. Yeah. It we're not it's not so much that nothing reinforces something it's that the shock or the ticket has been postponed so the the learner has experienced in the past whatever aversive it is and it is being reinforced by the fact that the aversive is postponed in the future now what i had found confusing in the conference however was when um, we were told, so the textbook was all wrong about negative reinforcement because the textbook said that the signal of an aversive would become aversive itself. You talked about conditioned uh, aversive stimuli before. And the learner would uh, work to avoid this aversive signal, this signal that had become aversive. They would and escape it. They I'll would. Just, because well, if it's maybe present, that's where, yeah, maybe that's where the if nuance If it's present, is. then you're escaping. So there were, you know, some examples were giving about how the signal is actually not aversive. And for me, this was very confusing because when we were presented with the poison cue research, that was, for me, very important. I really bought into this research that the, uh, the signal 
can become aversive. Absolutely. If, if it is taught in, a, in an aversive way, the signal will become aversive and the learner will avoid the signal, will do everything he can so that you don't, you don't, the signal is not emitted. And so my question then was, what are the conditions in which an averse, a signal may not be aversive? And what are the conditions in which a signal will become aversive? Um, let's see if my um, recollection or retell of where it gets confusing clarifies it all. Okay. As I understand it, you were talking about the, the difference between accounts of avoidance behavior. And one account is the two-factor theory or account that says that the reason why our behavior is increased in a signaled situation is because when the tone happens or the light goes on, or you see the police in the trees, or you read the news about COVID deaths, when the signal occurs, it creates an emotional response. And the operant avoidance behavior reduces the emotional response and affects escape. So you're escaping the negative emotions. And that explains avoidance, signaled avoidance. I think what the presenters were saying was that that account is no longer considered uh, useful to right, us. Right. The two, and that's been true for a long time. The two-factor account where you are both reducing emotions, emotional feelings, uh, negative emotional feelings, and you are escaping something is not the common account now. Uh, because of research that showed, and that was Sidman's unsignaled research, that even when there isn't a signal, so you don't have emotional responses to escape, you still behave in similar ways. The rat will still press the lever to postpone the shock. So right. once the work on unsignaled avoidance began, became um, more prevalent, much later than the origins of the two-factor account, the signaled avoidance studies, then the two-factor account that it was both classical conditioning, that the, the signal, the tone or the light, became an aversive stimulus, and you behave to escape the aversive stimulus. But when Sidman started to do unsignaled avoidance studies, there was no place for that two-factor account because there was no signal that would be conditioned as an aversive stimulus to then escape. So I'm unpracticed at explain, explaining it. If I can come around one more loop, it would be that with the signaled avoidance, the signal becomes, through respondent conditioning, an aversive stimulus of high arousal negative innate emotional responses, right, of emotions. And so when you hear the stimulus, the signal, then you behave to, now you have something to escape your negative feelings that are the product of pairing the signal, once neutral signal, with the water spray from the hose or the COVID virus or whatever the actual unconditioned stimulus is. So that two-factor approach 
requires a signal, you know, hypothetically now, it requires a signal that then because it predicts the unconditioned aversive stimulus becomes an aversive stimulus itself. And then the, the, the account is that once it's become an, a conditioned aversive stimulus, you are escaping it. And that explains why you would continue to escape something. What you're escaping is this conditioned response to this conditioned stimulus. Do you see what I'm saying? It's so hard for me to talk about. Let's give an example. Okay. Yeah. Let's give an example. So let's go with the hose that moves the macaques in a zoo or animals, you know, people do it to children and dogs, you know, it's not unique to zoos. So at first holding up a hose may have no negative loading on it. It's a neutral stimulus. But as it is paired with being sprayed forcefully, then the spray occasions moving away, escape behavior. Over the repetitions, just holding the hose will, the threat, the hose, will become an escape scenario. You'll move away just seeing the hose. The two-factor account, what they're saying is what maintains moving away from just showing the hose without the spray now. I can just show the hose. Right. And that, of course, is how in tradition, in standard horse training, that's how standard horse training works, where somebody will say, oh, look, you know, I'm, I'm so kind. All I have to do, I don't even have to use my whip. I just have to carry it. That's right. Or Ancuses with elephant training or dogs with eh, eh. Yeah. Right? They're all the same tool. I never have to hit my fill in the blank, but I just carry my my little riding crop with the pink sparkles on it, which you can actually buy riding crops with pink sparkles on them. Um, Or I don't have to hit my child. I just have to raise my my eyebrow. Yes. And so we ask people that, may be accurate, but how did those once neutral stimuli, you know, a stick, an eyebrow raise, a hose, come to set the occasion for escape behavior? And that's due to the conditioning, the Pavlovian conditioning between that item and the unconditioned stimulus, being pressured, being hit, being sprayed, being grabbed. Now we have conditioned aversive stimuli. Right. So in two-factor theory, the account of why escape behavior continues when you never do hit the horse or the kid or spray the macaque, what makes it continue is the idea that when you hold the hose up, these negative emotions occur and by moving into the shift door or uh, to the direction of the crop reduces the negative emotions as well as allows you to, yeah, to escape. Yeah, but the threat that's in the background. Yeah, and, and you have to, I suppose, because if you, you didn't hit again at some point, this would be extinguished. I mean, the, the threat would no longer, in time, the, the threat will diminish. And this is why you have to hit again in order for just holding the hose or raising that eyebrow continue to work. That's what you would think. 
that's exactly the meaning, the, the relevance of the word paradox, is that over time, we would expect if you didn't back up that conditioned stimulus, that aversive conditioned stimulus, what we would commonly call the threat, that the behavior would extinguish. What we see is sometimes it does, and sometimes, sometimes it, it doesn't. Does. The yeah. behavior goes on for a very, very long time, yeah, yeah. thus the paradox. So that's the two-factor theory that I think Paul Newman was saying is no longer a good account. And the reason why is when Sidman started, as I understand it, I'm telling history stories now, when Sidman said, okay, well, what happens if there isn't a conditioned stimulus? What if you don't pair a neutral stimulus like the crop or the ancus or the eyebrow with an unconditioned stimulus? What if there is no signal for the unconditioned stimulus, the hit, the water spray, the ticket? What if there is no signal? And so he did those studies. So there's only the shock. There's only the shock and they still learn. Only the shock and the lever. Right. And they still learn from the shock. Yeah, right. they learn to postpone. So I, when we say that the two-factor account is no wrong? longer, yeah, <laughs> is you know I don't use the word wrong. I'm not. I don't talk about it as definitively kaput, as mm-hmm. maybe some people do, because I'm very, very well trained to think of all science findings as conditional. Right. So it's only wrong until someone brings it back and shows that it's right, you know, in some way. It may be that neuroscience will come riding in on its steed to show that brain activity supports the two-factor theory. You know, I don't know. So I know that it's not, I would say, a popular account now. Functionally, you're right. People will say that account was wrong. I don't think it was stupid or foolish or silly. I think the story of two-factor explanations is sensible. And I think that's why we need science. We need the scientific method because not everything that's sensible, like the idea that you have a conditioned stimulus that elicits an emotional reaction and your behavior then gives you relief, escape from those emotions. I don't think that's a ridiculous um, hypothesis. It's just one that was not borne out when Sidman was clever enough to say, well, let's try it without the signal. And we still get that avoidance behavior. And so that's what discounts the two-factor account, is you don't need a signal that then becomes an aversive stimulus that triggers emotions and escape behavior. That's the the two factors, the respondent behavior, escaping the emotions and the operant, the relief, the escape provides. But in the real world, there often are signals. There usually are. Yeah. So there are definitely signals that help me to predict what is coming. You're a keeper. You've got, you've just picked up the hose. That's right. a pretty good bet that if I don't scoot out of here, I'm going to get wet. And I don't want that. That's right. And when you run away, don't you feel emotional relief? That's the emotion that's tracking negative reinforcement with a signal, signaled escape. 
And certainly with the horses, if I see you on the ground, I can see you lift the whip. But under saddle, if I'm the horse, I will feel the tension. I'll feel the way that you're about to lift your hand up and, and really give a whack. I'll sense the change in your breathing. You know, there'll be all kinds of changes that are predictors to, oh, I better move now because my person is about to really whack me if I don't. Right. So I think it's very tidy, very, very logical. It fits our own personal experiences. But then we have this paradox that even without the signal, you get the same response class. Yes. And so that's something to say. "Hmm." Right. Right. And we don't have, I, I suppose we could hypothesize that our verbal rule following operant class, you know, is um, a signal, but it's equally as interesting and important, I think, to consider it from an unsignaled point of view Yes, and say, without the measles, you know, why do we continue to get the shot? And why do some other people not? Because, for example, it's such an apt example, Alex, because I think it was in the Seattle or the Great Northwest area some of these, I, I, I believe it was measles, had this huge resurgence in the last couple of years. We've had a resurgence in New York State. Okay. Yeah. So it is important to consider that some of us follow the verbal rule, inoculate your children against measles yes. to protect not only your child, but the commons, yes. everyone's children. And then some of us don't. And that's where unsignaled avoidance, you know, the study of it is really relevant. And given what we're all living through right now, it it seems as though all of this is so much more in our face than it has been. And the change in behavior has been so dramatic. Mm -hmm. And just across the board, when I drive through town and I see now people out walking, they're all wearing masks. You go to the grocery store, everyone will be wearing a mask. And that's just like an overnight change. I've been in the grocery store and I was in the hardware store. And in the grocery store, they have everything clearly marked. There's a line, this is, there's the next line, they're six feet apart, this is where you stand. So it's clearly marked. In the hardware store, they don't have it marked out like that. But my goodness, we were all stopping six feet apart. That's right. It is amazing. In fact, yesterday, our supermarket just implemented uh, one-way traffic. Oh, we've had that, yes. Up and down the aisles. And I realized I went down the up aisle. And so I just walked backwards (laughs) (laughs) the whole way to be conforming and get out of the mistake that I made. Well, the points that you're making are, are really good. And I think... To circle back to your introduction, how you launched our our conversation is, do we want to stay here in an avoidance paradigm, whether it's a signaled or unsignaled paradigm, why do do we not want to? And part of it is what Dominique points out is that depending on your learning history, which I think is a really important conditional, uh, eventually the behavior will extinguish 
and then the likelihood of COVID increasing again to then launch the escape, the avoidance behaviors again. Right. You know, we don't want to be in that. Right. Which is exactly what they're, they're struggling with right now in terms of how do we reopen the economy? So if you relax some of the conditions, people get a little more comfortable being out and about, businesses start to open. Now there's more, there's less of the physical distancing and you get a resurgence of the virus. So this is right now what they're struggling with. You know, as we right. record this, who knows what we'll be struggling with by the time we, we, that's right. we put this out. So And that's the second paradox, you know, that idea that typically with reinforcement, the behavior builds, strengthens, yes. increases in frequency. The animal moves towards success, uses its behavior for ongoing successful outcomes with avoidance behavior eventually, eventually for many of us, it starts to decrease and vaccine use decreases and hand washing. So that's why I think we want to, that's one reason I think that we want to consider how can we move the model to a positive reinforcement model where successful behavior is maintained um, and away from an avoidance model where at least for many of us eventually without contact with the aversive event, we will reduce doing the behavior. But the, the other reason is, do we really want to live in what is a state of fear? How do we right. shift it? So, so hold that thought yes. and let okay. Dominique finish, yes. give us that punctuation. Yes. And that would be my second reason as well. Yeah. Yeah. So just before we go there, I just want to hear your definition, how you explain the difference, uh, Susan, between escape and avoidance. We don't hear a lot about that. So I would love for you to just give your definition and your, the, the difference between the two. I think it's really straightforward. When there is an aversive stimulus in the antecedent environment, we behave to escape it. When it's not in the antecedent environment, an aversive stimulus is not in the antecedent environment, but we see that postponing or distancing or removal behavior, that's avoidance. Yep. And that's, for me, my throughout my career, um, I don't think I'm missing anything. It's just that simple. So most of what we're doing that people call escape avoidance behavior is escape behavior. There's something in the environment and we use our behavior to create distance, to postpone or diminish the strength of that aversive stimulus. So if you think about ABCs, that we worked, you know, together with in the class so so frequently, and is such really such a useful simplifying tool for understanding. In escape negative reinforcement, 
there is an aversive stimulus in A, you behave to escape it, and the reinforcer is the escape or the mm -hmm. postponement mm -hmm. or the diminishing of, mm -hmm. of the aversive stimulus. With avoidance behavior, there is no stimulus in A, and yet you're still moving away. And that's the paradox. Mm -hmm. That's the unsignaled avoidance that Sidman and the many people who have worked since that original research has revealed. Now, there's no paradox. If I am holding a hose or I see a police officer in the weeds or you are holding a crop, the animal moves away, that's clear. Learning history is part of antecedents, isn't it? That's right. And so things do, I don't so, want to say- And, and we, we have also this, um, you know, this image of us coming into the middle of an experiment rather than having the bigger picture where you have the past. You can see the, if you can see the animal's past, you'll know that, you know, maybe in this context, the hose was presented in this context and there's no more hose, but just having that bigger picture, you have all the past, the learning history, and that's part of it because there would be no avoidance without that past history. Yes. And so maybe that's why some of the rats learned to postpone the shock and other rats never learned to postpone the shock. Perhaps they're learning history. We can imagine with some confidence that for those rats that never learn to push the lever to postpone the shock, if we gave them the learning history of lever pressing, if we actually shaped that behavior and we built a history of escape behavior, that they too would be more likely to press the lever. So the idea, when we want to explain why some people continue washing and others don't, some wear masks and others don't, learning history will certainly be one of our best explanatory variables. And when we think about learned helplessness, this is a dot that I connected recently in reading to prepare for us talking about it, negative reinforcement. We think about the learned helplessness procedure, the preparation, experimental preparation. Those dogs were taught that their behavior would not reduce or postpone the shock. Yeah. So they stopped using their behavior. Mm. Those animals could now, we call them, you know, the, the result, we call it the result of learned helplessness, but it's also very related to animals that won't wash their hands or move from the crop or move from the hose. So we can see that we can teach animals not to escape or avoid by putting them in situations where escape and avoidance behavior has no effectiveness. Right. Mm -hmm. For me, that speaks to your point about learning history. Mm -hmm. So if we have some horses who have learned moving away when you see the crop postpones getting hit or the ankus or the hose, then we would predict those animals will escape a single aversive situations very fluently with a lot of empowerment. If we think of animals that have lived their lives without that kind of control over outcomes, who have actually learned that even if you try and escape aversive stimulation, 
it will not work. Then we have those animals who don't use their escape, natural escape response to aversive stimulation. So this idea of learning history, not just history, but I like to make sure we call it learning, learning history, history. Yes. because what we're saying is maybe some of the variability across learners, those who continue to wash hands and then stone, is due to their learning history. Mm-hmm. And part of that is cultural. You know, mm-hmm. so for those cultures that have, for example, Arabic cultures with inshallah, God will, God will, will this, you will either get corona or you won't, and it's out of your hands, Mm. you might see a different behavioral escape and avoidance patterns than those, for example, from cultures where there's a lot of personal empowerment to control your outcomes. So there are many, many accounts, and it's not about finding one, it's about finding the many accounts that help us predict and protect through learning. Yeah. It makes me think when, when hand washing first came in to, and it was the maternity wards, and there was huge resistance among the doctors for washing their hands. Why should I wash my hands to go from patient to patient to patient? And they refused to, to adopt the behavior and women died. Yeah, back in the dawn of um, learning about medical behaviors, I remember reading something about that as well. Before people understood germs, (laughs) then the idea of washing your hand made no sense whatsoever. And the suggestion that you would wash your hands, they, they, they considered it an absolute insult. I've forgotten who the name of the man the doctor and scientist who I've read really, about it as yeah, well advocated it, but he was really ostracized. Right. Right. What are these things? Germs. germs. We can't see them. Yes. They must not exist. Yes. That's why I'm not so fast to discount explanations that are no longer in popular, you know, popular explanations. I, I see the data And I think, okay, that's why it makes sense to move from a discussion of two-factor theory, both respondent and operant working together to explain avoidance behavior or escape behavior. I understand why we go to one factor, but I, I see that, you know, there's some sense to it. So I kind of leave it in that back burner place and then we'll see. Yeah, we'll see. So to go back to your direction, Alex, about how do we move people from behavior maintained on escape yes. versus behavior maintained by approach, positive reinforcement. Yeah. yeah. I mean, we, it's, a, it's a really radical reconception of the job at hand. We don't well, want especially, especially since the threat is still in the environment. Right. Because this, this threat is not going away for a while. So yes, the, it's, part, it's part of the, right. the antecedents still. And the disease, right. is, the disease is indeed can be life-threatening. Absolutely. But so much of, our, of the behaviors that we've changed, some of us are discovering 
some really wonderful things in with as we as we have had to shift our lives susan when we were chatting before it was the discovery of that you could use shoppers to bring groceries <laughs> yes. and i loved that so right. so can you describe that a little bit yeah looking for ways that um, we can shift the behaviors we need to see uh, to be motivated if you will by the pursuit of positive reinforcers instead of escape. So one of those is discovering that I could make a very easy order online, no obstacles, just go to a website, pick the produce that I wanted, and it would be delivered within an hour or two. So that's a behavior that I can maintain for a very long time because it's positively reinforcing in many different ways. Now, it's interesting to you know to make the point that if the website didn't work if it didn't take my credit card if they weren't going to deliver for four days right. all of those obstacles would reduce the likelihood of me doing this new behavior but when the context and and um, setting events are in place to make it easier to use a delivery service it's faster I developed a relationship with the shopper. Yes. That was a bonus. Yes. Yeah. So um, she wrote to me and said that the thing, the item I ordered wasn't there and sent a photo of alternative choices. I was so, I admired her extra, going the extra mile on my behalf, you know, and so then I praised her and she was so excited to have done something that was meaningful to me and, so even though they drop it out on your doorstep, I had to run out one day and said, I just need to see who this wonderful person is who's helping me in my effort to stay home. So originally, so really, you, you went to the shopping service as an escape avoidance because you didn't absolutely. want the risk of going to the grocery store. Right. It was an avoidance behavior in the sense that there is no corona in the house I'm running away from. Right the positive reinforcers were revealed. Yes. So if this, if this event had not occurred, you might never have discovered or not discovered for years the very real advantages of having somebody else do your shopping for you because that frees up a whole lot of time. You can do other things that you enjoy. You still have the interaction with the person it's like a miracle. I yes. I yes. love it. Yes. And there are so many other things that are unlocking. You know, positive reinforcement, it dawns on me, is a very persistent actor in our lives. Oh. You know, it will it will sneak in to your left, it will sneak into your right. And I was saying, I think to you that it's like finding Easter eggs that it may not be obvious what are the reinforcers available to these avoidance behaviors, but positive reinforcement is like Easter. It, these eggs are hidden all throughout your home, and it's about engaging in the avoidance behaviors and then considering, wow, this is now a positive reinforcer. Like yesterday, I bought hand lotion to put next to every hand sanitizer. sanitizer. Yes. <laughs> and I'm really like digging this. I'm loving coming in doing my hand sanitizer in the 
laundry room I'm entering through the garage, then picking up the lotion, all of these antecedent arrangements that feel good, that have both the avoidance component. I feel like I'm, yes, I'm, I'm postponing Corona. I'm pushing it back, pushing it back. And then all of these positive reinforcers that come with the ease and the fun of the, you know, these are all conditioned reinforcers, like the pressing the lever on the sanitizer, hearing the sound of the lotion come out Yes. after I've, you know, the feeling that I've done something good, healthful, and right. These are things that will help us sustain the behavior. And in all of our supermarkets, there's hand sanitizer right at the cash register. There's now these acrylic walls, clear walls where the cashiers are behind. And these are, these are emotional positive reinforcers as well, that we're all working towards a common goal together. Yes. And for the person who did your shopping, I could see that somebody who was perhaps in her previous job before the shutdown, maybe she was a waitress in a restaurant. And one of the things that she enjoyed was being of service to people. Well, the restaurant is closed. It's going to be closed for a very long time. But she's found another way to be of service that actually could end up being more satisfying because that relationship goes on longer. You know, through the whole shopping experience, she might need to text you three or four or five times because of various questions that you have this on the list but they don't have it this week what and she'll do it more she'll text me more because i reinforced it yes yes (laughs) you know if me being smiley and happy and thanking her profusely is a are reinforcers to her we know she will text more yes right and then your grocery list the groceries she delivers will be more and more tailored to you and mm-hmm. not just, well, somebody threw these things in the, in a box. Absolutely. And, you know, I didn't, what, what am I supposed to do with this? Right. So, so there are ways that she can find the satisfaction. What is the function of being a waitress? A paycheck. <laughs> right. But there, but there are other, there's more. Absolutely. There are more reinforcers and the more, the more we, that's why we say in behavior and anal- applied behavior analysis, the, when you think about children with autism or intellectual disabilities, they often come with a very short list of reinforcers. And one of the things that we do is condition new reinforcers because the more reinforcers you have, the happier your life is. Yeah. If you can find reinforcement in putting lotion next to this hand sanitizer or seeing the acrylic. Um, wall that is protecting them and us. Yes. You know, then you walk through even these gloomy, doomy times, feeling more upbeat because you have more reinforcers for all of these behaviors right. to right. be maintained.
that's why we say in behavior and anal- applied behavior analysis, the when you think about children with autism or intellectual disabilities, they often come with a very short list of reinforcers. And one of the things that we do is condition new reinforcers because the more reinforcers you have, the happier your life is. Yeah. If you can find reinforcement in putting lotion next to this hand sanitizer or seeing the acrylic um, wall that is protecting them and us, yes. you know, then you walk through even these gloomy, doomy times feeling more upbeat because you have more reinforcers for all of these behaviors right. to right. be maintained. I don't right. want the acrylic walls to go away because we have cold seasons. You know, know. We have flu seasons. It's a great thing. Why haven't we done this before? What an easy, sensible thing to do so that right. we're not sneezing on one another all the time. But how do we, how do we find other ways? It's not, what are some other examples, other ways of reframing what people are experiencing? Because I think the more examples that we can offer, the more creative we can all be in recognizing those little Easter eggs that are all around us. I love that image. Mm-hmm. You know, we, of all the different disciplines related to behavior, have so much knowledge to share, so much power to share over arranging the environment to set the occasion for the right behavior and to use positive reinforcement to maintain it. One of the great challenges right now, I think that the people who are, who are in charge of opening up the economy are faced with is what to do about schools. How do you create the physical distancing that's required in a school setting? And if you can't open up the schools, you really cannot open up the economy because Somebody has to stay home and care for the children. So how would you begin to rearrange some of the, env- the environment, the contingencies? What would you do about schools? Yeah, these are big questions. And I, I always disclose comf- comfortably that I'm a, I'm a small brush stroke thinker, you know, because I find those big questions to be quite overwhelming and I think they're going to be best asked, best answered by the village, you know, by all of us right. um, being smarter than one of us. But we certainly do know how we can increase hand washing, hands away from face, s- social distancing, you know, yep. st- staying physically um, six feet apart. I'm just looking at uh, hand washing, face touching, isolation. Other forms um, of greeting. Right, exactly, Masks. which I know, <laughs> which I know you yeah. love. And part of it is even the story that we tell. So I didn't start wearing a mask until I heard the story that I would be protecting others. That moved me to put the mask on because being part of a commons is a thread of value in my life that you know has been all throughout my my adult life well even in my child life that's something that's a reinforcer for me how do we get you know protecting the commons to be a reinforcer we have to identify specific behaviors and specific outcomes so i think part of changing 
the school scenario is deciding on the specific behaviors that we need, creating the physical antecedent environment to make it easy so children go to their desks because the desks are situated correctly. Like we mentioned in the shopping, had that app not worked well, it would have punished my behavior and I would not have gone back to it readily. So we have to ask ourselves the antecedent questions, the behavior questions, you know, what are the behaviors we want? How do we arrange the physical environment, the context to make the right behavior easy? Yes. And then what are the reinforcers for it? So it really is that old simplified model that I've been teaching and using for years not to denounce in any way or devalue, you know, nonlinear contingency analysis that Joe is bringing us, which is going to be incredibly helpful from a clinical point of view. But that also does not discount the usefulness of the simplified version that when we're attacking a really huge and complicated problem, we say, what are the behaviors we want? How should the antecedent environment make that right behavior easy? And what are the reinforcers that will make it worth doing? And that's the way I would frame it. Great example are the arrows in the grocery store. Mm -hmm. I mean, we can envision that in schools, that even when I go to the bakery with my mask on, and the bakers have their masks on, and it was so funny the first day that I saw them, I walked in and you know, all these young bakers with yeah, their yeah. with their black masks on. And I just laughed. I said, usually the people with the masks are on my side <laughs> saying, you know, stick them up, you know, <laughs> open your register. And now I'm walking in and the signals for bad guys and escape behavior are behind the counter <laughs> instead of in front of the counter. But they they too are having us go in one door and out another door. <laughs> We can see how all of this could be done in schools with no problem at all if we teach people how to then reinforce the behaviors that we've set the occasion for. That's the key, isn't it? Yeah, I think that for me, being a small thinker, a fine brush stroker instead of the big policy level, wide brush stroke painter, I go back to those ABCs. Yeah. What's the behavior? to stay in your area, six feet apart, wash your hands, so forth and so on. How do we arrange the antecedent environment to make it easy? And what are the reinforcers going to be? I can imagine standing in front of a classroom saying, I noticed that when each of you sat down, you you pumped your hand sanitizer before you started your work. How thankful I am that I have a class of children who are not only protecting themselves, but one another, and the ripples to the other classrooms and out to the parking lot and out to the supermarket. You know, it would not be hard to imagine effectively changing behavior in these two, but we would need to know what are the behaviors? Have we set up the environment to make it easy? And what's the reinforcer? Yeah. And for those kids who are not reinforced by um, praise, we need to come up with something else because we always have to move back down to the individual level. Most of the kids will be reinforced by that. Some of them won't. Little Susie would not have been. That's why she spent so much time in the principal's office. So what would and you so, have needed to hear? What, what would have worked for you? 
Oh, that's an interesting question. So what are my reinforcers when adult praise was not effective for me? Oh. Yeah. I'd have to think about that. But it or might maybe, have been... Maybe it depended on who was giving the praise. Sure, sure. And my learning history with that individual. Mm -hmm. Or maybe it would have needed to be more tangible. So maybe I would move a ball across a wire every time I use the hand sanitizer. And then those balls would add up to the mystery box to pull something out of or free time in the gym or in the nature hut. So now we think about, you know, pre-max sort of, you know, what behaviors yep. would I have been um, restricted from until I met the contingency of, mm. you know, but all of the, we know how to do this. It's funny because in the news, Right now here in Quebec as well, we are talking about reopening the schools. The Montreal area has been uh, hit very, very badly. It's like New York and Canada. Oh. And what you're hearing are teachers who are saying it's not possible to keep social distancing between kids. And when I'm hearing you talk, I can see that it is you possible. I can see it. It's possible. Yes, but you know, the, what's coming out is it's not possible. We're going to fail. The threat is out there. And the government will be punished for having had this idea of opening the schools too soon. Mm -hmm. Well, because it's possible doesn't mean that it's easy. No, it's with the kids. So, we can see that it's not that easy. The young, young kids to keep the social distancing uh, because they're, you know, they're quick, they run to each other, they touch each other, they, they will, and if they fall down, you're going to have to, to help them up. So, mm -hmm. you know, we can see, but all the examples you're giving, mm -hmm. I wish you were on the news once in a while. <laughs> yeah, and so we have to separate all these constructs. It's so important to say that it's impossible when people mean it's not easy. Mm -hmm. So what would the obstacles be and what would make it easier? So maybe we only have in our 20 child classroom, we have 10 Monday and Wednesday, 10 Tuesday and Thursday, and Friday is off to prepare the environment each week. You know, the, what is not possible? We may choose not to do it, but then that issue is one of resources not of behavior science. And I, I have occasion to make this distinction working in zoos all the time when they say it's not possible to provide the level of activity engagement to reduce pacing in a bear. And I say, oh no, it is completely possible as gravity. It's as likely to succeed as gravity what you're talking about is a resource issue. Mm -hmm. You may not have enough keepers. You may not have enough automatic feeders. You may not have enough enrichment items. You may not have enough space. But let's not confuse a resource problem with the potential of behavior science to change this animal's behavior. Mm -hmm. Because that is always available to us. Yeah. So and that has we, been very Now impactful. we need to understand how to change that virus behavior. <laughs> Listen, that is a great thought. I mean, 
I've been having discussions with my son-in-law, my daughter, uh, Marnie, and her husband, Tim, are living in the downstairs apartment, and they left New York City about a week before it got very hard. So we're so thankful for that. And um, she enjoys cooking, and he enjoys cleaning, and so I get to work more. This is a positive reinforcer on many levels. But Tim is an engineer, and he's been working in his spare time with a group of engineers that met together on the web. They don't know each other. Around the world, global community has formed another collateral benefit to come up with practicable, affordable, efficient, effective ventilators. So this has been very interesting for me to watch. But he and I have been engaging in discussions about, you know, what is this virus? And if it's a learning organ, if it's a living organism, it learns. Mm -hmm. And so how can learning solutions be applied? And he was teaching me that there's debate about viruses are even living organisms, that there's an account of corona, that it's strictly mechanical. It's simply a key. And our lung cells are the door. Yes. And the key fits that door and ejects this virus. So there are many very interesting things, all of which relate to our schema for how behavior works. We know that single cells can be conditioned. That was work that was done many years ago in the 50s or the 40s. We know that um, bacterium, a single bacterium, moves towards reinforcers like debris amassing around bubbles and moves away from toxic substances. So connecting the dots between our science and a helping role is really available to us now. So we can certainly change our behavior. There's no question of that. We've seen it. For the last few weeks, we've seen dramatic illustrations of that. And one of the things that I found really interesting was to watch the difference in responses. So in the barn, we have one boarder, and he's my stall cleaner. He takes care of the horses when I'm traveling, but I'm not traveling now, so I actually am in the barn more when, he, when he's around. But he's 83 years old. Yeah, wonderful. Yes. yes, we should all be as healthy <laughs> as as he is. But at 83, he's in the high risk group. So right. we do stress, you know, we have to be really mindful and careful. And even though we're both fairly, you know, keep fairly isolated, there still is that risk. So we have to be careful. He's a very social individual, very social individual. And the other day, Somebody, and I've forgotten the, what the situation was, but somebody stopped in at the barn when we were both there. And this visitor was chatting and my, my porter was in the stall with his horse. So there's a wooden barrier, a wall between the two of them, which is good and solid. But as they're chatting, the visitor was starting to talk about motorcycles. Well, my porter rides motorcycles. And so as soon as they started talking about motorcycles, (laughs) the distance closed. Absolutely. You're now friendly. You're you're part of my tribe. I don't see you as something that someone who is 
potentially harmful to me, a threat. So the distance closed and it kept closing and closing. And I'm watching this thinking, this is just too, you know, if, if it wasn't the serious element behind it, it's just too funny to watch as this is unfolding. And of course, I'm more like two magnets that are, you know, the same. It's like, let me get opposing. Uh, yes, uh, let me move further and further away. So I'm very good at when, when in the grocery store, if somebody's coming down the aisle, I'm very good at that. Oh, let me back off. Whereas he would be, let me close too. So where is this going? Part of it was just, it was just an entertaining observation. But it also goes to, especially with children, as they learn, yes, hand-washing behavior is a good thing, but some of the physical distancing, the social distancing, what effect is that going to have on the children who are going to be growing into adults in the next generation? They're gonna be very different people. It seems as though it's all the more important to find those positive those Easter eggs, because otherwise we are going to have a generation of very fear-driven and not very... Affiliative. Affiliative, and also not people who are able to reach out and explore and take risks. Mm -hmm. You know, it's funny you say that because that, that happened to me the other day. I went to get a computer part I needed, and so I donned my mask and went out and at Best Buy, you can only order and then they'll meet you at the curb, curb. which yes. is cool. Yes. But as the person who is going to interact with me over purchasing this computer item, as we started talking, she started moving closer. Yes. And I was aware that you could either punish it or you could set the occasion with a prompt for an alternative behavior. And so I laughed and I said to her, I just moved away. And when I did, that was the signal for you to move forward. And she laughed. She said, oh my gosh, now that you say it, I did observe you taking a step back. And my automatic response was to close the distance again. Yes. And we laughed, you know, old habits are hard to break, but, you know, thank you for staying where you are. I'll step back again. Let's give it a try. And I stepped back. She stayed place and we laughed again. So even within that little dynamic, you have a choice between punishing something or finding a a positive reinforcement approach.
So even within that little dynamic, you have a choice between punishing something or finding a, a positive reinforcement approach to delivering you know, the, the program. Right. Mask wearing. So you walk into a store, you don't have a mask on, and everybody is scowling at you. So you feel the uh, shamed, the cultural shaming. So you put, pick up your mask. Well, that's not a really nice way to go about right. things. So that's right. Can we find the Easter eggs in wearing masks? Well, there really, are two. <laughs> there are what's two that? Easter eggs. Well, the one that Susan mentioned before, because she's someone who values taking care of others. And so when she heard that it would protect others if she had the virus uh, and didn't know she had it, because the mask would protect the others if you were asymptomatic. But also they've started saying for the other more egoistical people <laughs> that some of us are, they've, you know, they're saying it can protect you too. Yes. Maybe not as much as an N95 mask, but right. it still gives you a certain level of protection. That's avoidance behavior, but That's I think right. it's not pot because I mean to wear a mask is but we're, we're, we're missing a third one. Which one? Which is some of the masks that people have been wearing. They're funny. They're really cool looking. Yeah, I bought, I bought one with, I have of, one with dog paws. Yeah. So, you know, in the past, when you saw people, for example, um, flying on airplanes, there would right. always be some family group, somebody on the airplane who was wearing a mask, but it was the surgical mask. And it was one or two people. So they were very much the odd person out but now we're all wearing masks and because we had to scramble to get masks and the surgical masks and the m95 masks weren't available we're having to make them out of who knows what so people were very creative and and suddenly you know trust trust uh americans to come up with let's have fashionable masks right but that makes it more fun Absolutely. The reinforcers Absolutely. are there. You can match your mask to your outfit. Yes. I love the ones that show like alien teeth. I don't know why, <laughs> but I really enjoy the ones that are actually an image of something that's really terrifying. Absolutely. So really what we're saying, you know, from all these different amazing and interesting avenues is that behavior is flexible and what moves it is the environment. That has got to be the most hopeful ray of light on any difficult situation is that the bottom line is we can move where we need to move behaviorally in order to protect ourselves and others. We move because of the motivation of escape, avoidance, and also you know, the beneficial, the approach, positive reinforcers. And it's just a phenomenal planet. So once we understand where the threats are coming from, we can have these kinds of discussions and say, okay, it's avoidance behavior. Isn't that an interesting motivation, so to speak, environmental arrangement for us to move away? Um, we can escape things that are present. We can do things because they produce positive reinforcers or appetitive outcomes. This is an amazing planet. And Somehow, 
it almost sounds Pollyanna, but you both know me. You've seen me consistently come to this point in any discussion is that this is a hopeful arrangement, that even when I feel despair, there's this little ray or thread that allows me to feel uplifted because I am a behaving organism. I have power not only to be influenced by the environment, but to change the environment. I mean, it's amazing. I am not only a hapless victim. I am also an empowered actor. And so this conversation has partly been about where can we put that power to change the environment? It's shoving us with corona and we can push back. And what does that look like? All the many different ways, wearing masks to help yourself, to help others, setting up acrylic boundaries, uh, one-way directions at the supermarket, classrooms where you may only have a fifth of your class every day, so it is more manageable, and then arranging the desks so they're at the proper distance. And, you know, it's not an all or nothing. If I was working with seven children and one fell, the risk of corona for a kid who fell that I scooped up into my arms, for the kid who had been sanitizing Right. going out the one-way right. door, right? right? We can afford that level of risk. It's like you said, uh, postponement, we're reducing. It doesn't have to be the elimination of risk, but scooping up a kid who needs me, who's already done all of these risk reduction behaviors is a completely different matter than scooping up the kid who's been in the bus with you know, 45 other kids. Yeah. Yeah. So thinking about risk reduction through our behavioral power, I think is a, a really good way to look at it instead yes. of, you know, it's all bad or it's all good. That's not going to be an effective approach because we're never going to stamp it out to zero. But the issue is we don't need to stamp it out to zero. Right. Right. To so, make it safe. I, I'm, I'm thinking now of the person who maybe listening to this thinking, well, this is all well and good, you know, but, I've lost my job. I'm living. Uh, I I can't get to my horses. That's right. Loud. I'm living in a house with people that I'm really struggling to get along with. You know the reality that I've found myself in. Really living (laughs) under serious aversive clouds. It's not rain. Even it's a it's a monsoon. Um, They've lost their job. They've potentially lost their significant other to corona yeah they are living in close quarters apartment dwelling that kind of thing they had no savings they have no shopper i mean i know i sound ridiculous with the power i have because of my affluence absolutely i think a lot about this and so how can we help people who don't have Right. Are not as there empowered. There is that connection Absolutely. to what you know. We that you know that is a powerful message that we can change our behavior. We can create our own reality. That that shopper that who is bringing you your groceries may have lost her job as a waitress, but she's now earning a paycheck. But not everybody has that alternative. Not everybody has that. That's right. 
and particularly if you are if you're in a high risk group where where are the easter eggs for these individuals this is a huge question it's another one we've been talking about a lot over dinner um with marnie and tim is you know i'm not going to make i'm not helpful to someone who doesn't have the power i have to not use my power to protect myself so i have to remind myself that you know the guilt of being the privileged is meant to inspire me to help not to feel embarrassed or upset about my own empowerment riches you know so i think about that a lot too but if we but imagine you, you there are people who have no power yeah they have they do not have they do not have power to access easter eggs that may even not even may not even be present in their lives right right and so that's the big social question and in an election year Uh This is a very relevant question to ask, is how can we continue to empower people to affect their own outcomes? And that's a huge social question. So I hear you, and I do think about it every day. And maybe in some ways I do hide behind the comfort of being a small stroke person. But you were the child in school who spent more time in the principal's office than elsewhere. So you could have found yourself on a completely different life path where you would not have ended up talking oh, absolutely. to us. My so fourth you, grade you, teacher. You had not learned helplessness. You, and it's something I wonder about is how, what were the protective what were the inoculations that protected me from going down the tubes, given that I had such a hard time with authority and with physical constraint in a desk and so forth and so on? Maybe you, you had a great principle. I, I had a great principle. How did you find the power? And I had a great mother who continued to say, there's something wrong with them. Mm. And I think that was the biggest protective factor was uh, a coach, you know, the mom behind me saying, you got sent home again? What's wrong with them? Mm. (laughs) So, you know, I mean, I think that really was very protective that I had a family that admired the spunk and the anti-authoritarianism and the creativity and so forth. And that trusted I would learn to read and calculate and all of the things that I was escaping from in school, regardless of that scenario. Look, these are huge questions so and we, sense, we need to spend time yeah, on them. But in Absolutely. a sense, the coronavirus is doing us a favor because it's revealing many of the inequities in our mm-hmm. culture, mm-hmm. but in a way where it's clearly not your fault. You know, you didn't lose your job because of the way you were performing. The restaurant didn't close because nobody was coming to have dinner there. And when we talk about opening up Montreal or some of our southern states are talking about it as well in different communities, who are the people who will be at the highest risk? Not me. Because right. I'm going to stay home even if my community opens. Right. 
Yeah, and it's already true because right now the community uh, is eclosion a word in English? No, it's not a word. The community transmission is happening more in the socially deprived neighborhoods. Right, right. It's poor, already poor people. Poor right. people. Yeah. Or less empowered people. It's difficult to talk about, and I worry that I'm not talking about it sensitively enough that I don't have experience and feedback to teach me to talk about it well. But it's definitely, oh, I am definitely aware that this is another one of those social situations where the people who are less empowered, which I guess is a synonym for, you know, socioeconomic differences. Right. In that money sort of is that river underneath the ground that is always empowering or um, not empowering, you know, are going to be hit the hardest. And what do we as individuals do about that? I mean, I know that behavior analysis, understanding how behavior works, is going to be a help. Yes. Is going Definitely. to help us. Um, and on an individual basis, hearing, I think, over and over again, that we really can change behavior. Right. Uh, is important. I guess, Alex, it, the que one question is, whose behavior needs to change in order to help people who will be hardest hit if states open up too early? Because people who have the affluence to stay home will stay home regardless oh. of the people who can't, who are suffering, not having work, which means not having food because there was no nest egg, are going to go out there. They must go out there. Yes. And so they will be hit the hardest. So whose behavior needs to, to change? You know, I think it's the collective that is able to help the commons. It's not, you know, it's, we can't expect people to not go back to their jobs who are hungry for lack of their jobs. Right. Yeah, and all the businesses too. I mean, absolutely. If if they don't reopen, the businesses are all going to be bankrupt. It is. I mean, a frightening set of dominoes that this, the speed with which this virus transmits, yes, has yeah has put us in. So the question is going to be: if we are going to open more, what can behavior analysis offer to help do it well? And the antecedent arrangement that we're seeing with the one-way aisles and the plexiglass and, you know, all of these are part of it. Yes. Well, we're certainly seeing a lot of creativity in businesses. Mm -hmm. I mean, you can see all the ones that are adapting mm -hmm. and that are actually seizing this mm -hmm. to evolve versus others. Absolutely. And I know that for maybe some companies it's more difficult because, you know, it's sometimes a big boat is harder to maneuver and you may have the kind of business that cannot adapt easily. But I mean, you, it's, you always see that, right? You always see the creative entrepreneurs who will just come up with these ideas who are making masks right now or doing right. all these online new stuff. It's, it's like human knows how to adapt. So the planet, I yeah. think generalized across living organisms, some of us do and others don't. Mm -hmm. And we should pursue 
what accounts for that variability and then help those that don't to do so. But as long as there's a socioeconomic correlate, it becomes a very big social question. Yes. And it, I think dealing with it on the, the small brush is really where we operate because it's within the people that we contact, the people we come uh, in contact with, whether that is through the time we spend in the grocery store or the, the wearing of masks when we go to, you know, wherever it is, the post office, whatever, that that's where we can affect the most direct change. And then we can certainly create a lot of change by remembering that we should vote in the fall. That's right. And that we should port, support the people who do the big brush stroke well. Yes. So I'm always looking for those people as well. If I concede my inability to be a big brushstroke person, but I continue to sharpen my point on my small brushes to be as good at it as I can possibly be, one of the responsibilities I have is to keep my eyes sharp for the people who are the big brushstroke thinkers yes, and to support them in whatever way that I can. So I, we do what we can with our small brushstroke. And we support the people who use the big brushstroke. And I think in my lifetime, that's, that's about all I can do. But I think about it a lot. You know, yeah. I, don't, I don't ever abdicate my responsibility for trying to influence a better world, you know. So, yeah. Oh, yeah. It's <laughs> it is certainly, this, this virus has certainly created a lot of really interesting conversations and this has been one absolutely of them. yeah yes yeah i agree there's lots for us to think about and the three of us especially we could talk forever uh, yes productively productively yes <laughs> but we probably shouldn't because uh i think this has been a superb conversation it's exactly what i was hoping that we would talk about because it's important no it's important and it helps us to understand both, you know, in our own personal behavior, the human interactions it will certainly have implications for the horse training. But right now, what's impacting all of our lives is the coronavirus. And so this is an important conversation. So thank you. Well, thank you for the opportunity. And if yeah. nothing else, if we didn't provide tangible answers and solutions and suggestions to people at least they get to know us better that's right and uh, the separation between us becomes smaller you know as we recognize ourselves in others yes and uh, and share the difficulties as well as the power right because this is not a simple situation that we are in if there were easy answers people would have come up with them that's right right and there was no easy answer in terms of the decisions to close down the economy. And, you know, I was thinking about this the other day. In hindsight, knowing what we know now, what, what if anything, would we do differently? Mm -hmm. And given the information that was available at the time and given what the emotional level was when the economies were, were being shut down, 
was there any other course that could have been taken? And even if there, it was another course, this is the course we're on. So from this point forward, these are, this is where we have to find our solutions. Right. And there aren't easy solutions. No, it's going to take all of us as well. Yes. Which is why I think also um, taking care with one another is yeah. so important. Inviting that discussion is so important to the extent that we can do it, then we should. Yeah. And um, to be understanding of people who can't, you know, yeah. we don't, we're not in their story. Yeah, it always leads to that that same place. We have to do what we can and be understanding of those that are not. And so. I think that is that's such an important piece to say. You know, it's going to take all of us working together. And I think that is a huge gift, actually, that this virus is giving us, is learning how to do that, to do it better. Because there's a lot coming at us. You know, if we look at climate change and so on, and you look at what is what some of the models are predicting in terms of the really the the catastrophic changes that are going to come uh, that are unfolding over the next very short time frame. This is good practice. And our lives, living a life that is restricted, which my life has been so unrestricted, really, just experiencing restriction is a very interesting experience and it's likely one that will be more common in the future if we don't turn things around. Right. It might be worth just mentioning on our podcast because it's from a political point of view so outrageous that when I posted your beautiful video, Alex, on um, oh, horses yes. for future, yes. that and then tried to boost it um, so that it would be spread around thousands and thousands of people, as I do when I occasionally boost an important post, that they refused to take my money. They refused my money to boost it because it was too political or socially controversial, is what they said. said yeah. Who's they? And Facebook. Facebook. Really? Yeah. It was just so if you go on my, <laughs> if you go on my Facebook Behavior Works page, and scroll down now two posts to Alex's post, a beautiful paragraph about how people with horses are in many ways leaders, frontline contributors, because they typically have land mm -hmm. if they have horses. And so they can start to steward the land better. And that would help for ultimately to climate change um, in the right direction. And so I posted it as I have posted many, many, every post I, I put up has a social commentary yeah. through the lens of behavior analysis, every single post. So I went in and I, I paid my money to boost it for seven days across, you know, eight earth regions. And it was uh, rejected. They wouldn't allow me to boost the post. Uh, because yeah. it fell under the, the words climate change, kicked a syllogism in that said it was not just political and socially controversial, but that it was inappropriately political and socially controversial. Wow. Right. And so I tried it again um, with a different title, and it got rejected again. So, And if we can't talk about some of these things on wow. a benign level that that was 
I wonder if this would have happened if you really had had Canadian Facebook. If what? If your Facebook had been Canadian, I wonder if this would have had happened. Well, they allowed me to keep the video. Even the words allowed bristles the same kid who ended up yes. in the principal's yes. office. Yes, yes. What do you mean you're not allowing me to go to the bathroom until 10? <laughs> what? How is this possible? My mother doesn't limit my bathroom behavior. So they, they allowed the video. They allowed me. They accepted the video and the write-up, which I was thankful for. At least it, it went to 3,000 people, I think. But it would have gone to 103,000, as many of my posts do, um, when I boost them. And so without the boosting, it went to 3,000. So they accepted the video. Yes. They accepted the paragraph. So what weren't they accepting? The boosting. My money to put it on hundreds of thousands of people's Facebook feed. Okay. So when I put, for example, I boosted a very precious video from Calgary of Abu the bear coming out from under the snow from torpor, from a hibernation-like yep. months. I boosted that because it's very rare to actually see an see animal it. come out. So I paid you know, $25 and I picked all the different regions in the world that I was paying for this to come through their feed. And as a result, it got a million and a half reach. Good grief. And so this is an example of those that have, should think about how to use what they have to influence those that yeah, don't. Yeah. So this is my, what my small brushstroke looks like. And for some reason, I can't even get up the uh, Facebook page. But oh. with your post, I wanted to boost it so that I could get it in more people's feed right this is such a, a, a an influential campaign to say to people with horses your land matters and right. what you do with your land is your power to help yes. the commons yes and so i thought you know i'm gonna throw 25 dollars at that sure so when i said to boost it they rejected the boosting yeah. which means they rejected my money which is significant Yes. And it is Tens so interesting that, you know, what gets, what we are not allowed to talk about. Exactly. But Facebook got so much bad press yeah. as they should have. I but how did climate change get in there? I know. And how are we going to, how are we going to affect a positive outcome if we can't talk about it? That's right. On this platform. I get why. Facebook has to have limits because there was some, you know, there's a lot that's zipped around the planet that shouldn't be, but. And so these are big brush issues. Who gets to decide Mm -hmm. what shouldn't be said and what hurts the commons rather than helps who gets to decide. It's very complicated. So when we take away the rights of, the people we think are the bad people misusing social media. I got sucked into that policy with a climate change. We have to ask how, how did climate change get on that syllogism? Yes. Yes. 
So, which is part of why it's been so such a difficult topic to talk about. That's right. And to, yeah, to educate, to inspire. I mean, that video of yours will inspire, is inspiring everyone who stops to see it. So one of the, one of the changes that the coronavirus has inspired for me is I've put in a vegetable garden. I just finished building the fence for it uh, last night. It's been quite a project building this garden. And it's because I have well-composted horse manure, a ready supply yes. of it, that makes it easy to build a vegetable garden. Well, I wanted to do a Horses for Future podcast on growing veggies. And so I contacted one of my clients who's a horse person and a professional dog trainer. And instead of talking about training, we talked about veggies because she's been an organic gardener since the 1980s. She's very, very knowledgeable. She's gardened in a number of different states, so she knows different climates. And last year, she started a farm stand. So she took her produce and puts it out on the farm stand. And the name of the farm stand is Feed Thy Neighbor. So it's an honor system completely. If you have money and you can pay for this, pay for it. Pay what you think, you know, pay what you're comfortable paying. If you don't have money, don't worry about it. Take what you need. Holy moly. Share it with other people. And her vision is not just for this farm stand, but all of us who are now putting in veggie patches because of the coronavirus. We're going to have an abundance. I'm going to be growing more than I can possibly, I hope. <laughs> if, my, if my vegetable garden is successful, I'll be growing enough to share. Right. And, I, and so her vision is that you have these feed thy neighbor farm stands and the produce, the, the proceeds from those of what people leave is then donated to various charities. Now, that's an idea that I would love to boost around the planet. There are so many ways to do that. You, you know that once you graduate my Living and Learning with Animals class, if you choose to come back as an auditor, you pay $100 directly to one of three organizations. And over the last 20 years, we've given away $75,000, $85,000 in auditor's fees. Wow. Just because I always welcome the auditors back. It takes repetition for fluency. And Jim Payant, one of my TAs, said, you know, we ought to do something with that. Yeah. I was like, oh, my gosh. Or Joan Orr and her Tag Teach podcasts and webinars. She has, as of Corona, in her advertisements for joining those webinars, say, pay what you can. We're charging 20, but pay what you can. So we're seeing it, you know, there's so many ways once we get the prompts to rethink what we're doing. Yes. I thought it was kindness that I enjoyed to say auditors can come back as many times as they want. But that's that's puny. That's very, very tiny. And then someone prompts me, if they're willing to pay $100 to come back to a donation, wouldn't that be amazing? And it grew and it grew. And, you know, so even just the um, discussion about what creative ways can you do with your abundance to be able to give back and how is it especially relevant to 
the problems we need to solve, climate change or corona. There are enough problems to solve that even those of us with small brushstrokes can pick a few of those. Yes, yes. And sleep better at That's night. Right. You know? That's mm-hmm. right. Because if we all, if we, with a small brush, if there are enough small brushes painting, it will painting eventually the mural get will go That's quickly. Right. So, <laughs> That's right. you know, I, can I solve the, the problems of world hunger? No, but I can, in this time that I have where I'm not traveling, I can build a vegetable garden and I can build it large enough so that the intent is to share. And the Easter eggs in that whole chain are huge. Abundant, abundant. Absolutely. So we just have to find those ways that we can have those those Easter eggs. In New York City at seven o'clock every night where they go out on the balconies and cheer for the health workers. Those are huge Easter eggs because that cheer is for everybody. That's right. That social connection is for everybody. There are Easter eggs. They're there. They're magical. They're there. And the emotion that tracks that contingency yeah. is hope. Yes. You know, yes. so I think that's the thing that has sustained my interest in behavior analysis for now 45 years is that whatever. I'll say it this way. Every problem on the planet is a behavior problem. Yes, You'll yes. not be able to think of one single problem on the planet that doesn't lead back to behavior. And there's this very robust science to be able to help in some way to address those problems. Yeah. Okay. So that's the note we end on. Hope. <laughs> That's right. Yeah. It's a great emotion. Hope and behavior. Yeah. Because, you know, for me, when I see all those rainbows, it's not enough to say everything will be fine. Oh, no. I want, requires I want to action. know what, yeah, because the rainbow on its own is very depressing. You know, you I, see all these people dying in senior homes and there are rainbows all over the place. No, you want to know what the action that accompanies the hope is because you can't just Absolutely. say it'll be fine. You look like a unicorn, but yeah. And behave. that's more faith, you know, the yeah. rainbow without action yeah. is a faith based strategy, which yeah. is also a it's part of our of complex. Weave. Yeah. Yeah. But and um, yeah. And then uh, behavior analysis, I would say is, the way I've always thought about it is that it is the hope with action. Yeah, exactly. And exactly. Um, all hope can have an important role. I, we don't even have to rank it. We just have to make sure ours is at the table. And because our level of analysis is behavior environment in a culture that thinks about causes as inside the organism instead of in the environment, we have to continue to push and to fight and to get our our place at that table, which means great demonstration, great explanations, ongoing research to keep getting better at what we do. Yeah. Yeah. Hope. I love hope. Hope, hope yeah. with action. Yeah. 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 Or, or to use the, the garden metaphor. I think as a gardener, I'm an optimistic visualizer. Mm-hmm. You know, I put that, those plants in the ground. <laughs> I'm visualizing. Right. what they're going to turn be. into. And I'm optimistic enough to think that that's actually going to occur. And it will. And it does. Well, sometimes it does. And sometimes the woodchuck comes in 
and when it doesn't, you adapt. Like you adapt. Dominique that's right. was saying, you'll change what you do. That's right. That's, that's right. why behavior is just the most to yeah. start. We started with the notion of it being endlessly flexible. Yeah. I don't say that in a trivial way. We are built to be moved by the environment and to move it. Mm-hmm. This is an exciting level of empowerment. Yes. Yeah. And we are moving, that's for sure. Mm-hmm. We're being pushed by this yeah. little invisible. We cannot see it, but we are definitely changing our behavior because of it. That's right. And, that, and therefore changing the environment. And therefore changing the environment. The more we do these yep. healthful behaviors, the more likely the virus will. Yeah. Yeah. And the, the key is to keep looking Die. for ways to change for what we would call the better. And for others. Yeah. So I'm sorry, but the rainbow, it just keeps coming out. Yeah. We'll let <laughs> you're right. Out. My rainbow is all about behavioral action. It yeah. is not about inaction. Absolutely. Mm. Yeah. Yeah. Absolutely. Well, thank you, too. Yes. It's thank you. It's just a treat to spend a morning with you. And if anybody else enjoys or gets a new thought or a new action, as a result of sharing our conversation, that's the gravy because yes. just talking to the two of you was enough for me. Yeah. Thanks well, thank very you, much. Susan. Thank Talk you. again soon, cool. I hope. Bye yes. bye. Goodbye, bye, Susan. This was a long podcast. We covered a lot of ground, beginning with our discussion of negative reinforcement and the coronavirus, vaccines the paradox of avoidance and the two-factor theory. All of that set the stage for our discussion of positive reinforcement. That's where I really want it to go. How do we turn what we're all experiencing around so that we look at what we want to create, what we can create, not just what we have to do to stay safe from the virus, but how do we take this opportunity to find those Easter eggs that that Susan Friedman keeps talking about. There's that great quote again, positive reinforcement is a very persistent actor in our lives. So we are out there hunting for Easter eggs. And the good news is you have only to look and you will find that they're everywhere. Which brought us in our conversation to small brushstroke thinking. And finally, to hope. That's something we definitely need. We talk about these being challenging times. I think of them as changing times. I have hope that if all of us who are learning about behavior science begin painting with our small brushes, we'll be able to nudge the changes in a direction in which people and planet can thrive. But that's enough talking. If I don't stop, we'll never end this podcast. So here are just the final notes. If you want to learn more about Susan's work, her website is behaviorworks.org. That's where you'll find information about her Living and Learning with Animals online course. That's the course she talked about in the podcast. You can also visit her Facebook group, Behavior Works, And that's well worth the visit because she posts just some absolutely wonderful videos on on that group, videos that people share with her that are sent to her from all over the planet. And 
Remember, we have just launched an audio course here on Equosity. That's the Listen and Learn audio course on behavior analysis. Our co-presenter in that course is Mary Hunter, and you've been meeting Mary over the last couple of weeks in our podcast. We're offering an early bird introductory price, which is good through May 31, 2020. To learn more about that course, visit equosity.com. And now, this really is long enough. So thank you for listening, and stay well. <laughs>